Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing alright. Do you want to tell the listeners about what you've been dealing with lately, Sarah? Well, I've been sick. I am about a week back from going to an all-women's podcast festival down in LA called Work It, put on by WNYC Studios, and uh, that was super cool. The conference was cool, but I got food poisoning while I was there. Oh no, potentially because you're allergic to avocado. And LA people just put avocado in everything Mm -hmm. without specifying. It's very (laughs) frustrating. Yeah, and then also stress with work because it's her funding drive coming up. And then in some sort of strange cosmic coincidence, you got sick and our fish got sick. Yeah, our beta fish named Fish. Don't know what's wrong with him, but I've tried a whole bunch of different medications and his only symptoms are that he can't seem to swim very well and he doesn't have much of an appetite. It it looks like he's having troubles breathing, but nothing worked with guild disease medication, so it might be a parasite. Who even knows? Yeah, so we're a little worried about fish, so send your thoughts and prayers, I suppose, for for our fish. So I I thought I'd let you just sort of talk a little bit about that stuff, because I'm going to talk a little bit about the movie we're watching today, and I'm going to end up talking a a lot here at the top of the show. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have to do any research, which is nice because last week I did so much research. So what are we watching this week, Ben? Well, this week we are watching a very unique film in the history of the horror genre, which is 1932's Dr. X. I'm actually very excited to watch this movie. When we watched it a few years ago, I absolutely loved this movie. (laughs) Yeah, you've been pretty excited. As we've sort of established in past episodes, by 1932, it was clear that the trend for American horror could not be ignored, as every major studio was dipping their toe in, or at least planning to. Warner Brothers had no real desire to make the kind of horror movies Universal and its imitators were putting out. So they instead set about to create a project that suited the studio's existing house style, as well as some of their unique production needs at the time. The Warner Brothers Movie Studio was founded, of course, by the four Warner Brothers. The elder three were born in the 1880s in Russia-controlled Poland as Hirsch, Abraham, and Shmuel Wansel, the sons of Jewish shoemaker Benjamin Wansel. The family emigrated to Canada in the 1890s, where the sons became Harry, Albert, and Sam Warner, with younger brother Jack Warner born in London, Ontario. They got their start in movies by showing films on a projector they bought to mining towns in Pennsylvania in the 1900s. They then started distributing films in the 1910s, and after World War I ended, they started producing them, opening the Warner Brothers studio in 1918 in Hollywood and incorporating as Warner Brothers Pictures in 1923. 
Sam and Jack assumed the roles of co-heads of production in Hollywood, while Harry and Albert handled finances and distribution from New York. The studio's first big success was with the Rin Tin Tin series of films, starring an adventurous German shepherd and produced by <laughs> Daryl F. Zanuck, who became Jack Warner's right-hand man. So nothing to do with the Tin Tin comics. No, um, Rin Tin Tin was just the name of the dog. Okay. And this dog was considered the mortgage lifter by Jack Warner for how successful his projects were. As mentioned in our episode on The Bat Whispers, it was Sam Warner who was sufficiently impressed by Western Electric's demonstration of a synchronized sound-on-disc system that he convinced his brothers to acquire it for the studio, creating the Vitaphone system of sound film. The subsequent financial success of The Jazz Singer in 1927 using this system propelled the Warner Brothers studio from one of the Poverty Row B-movie studios to the ranks of the Majors in Burbank. Unfortunately, Sam Warner would die the day before the film's release, and thus never see the success it would bring his brothers and their business. How did he die? Uh, it was during production on The Jazz Singer, towards the end, that Jack had noticed that his brother Sam was having severe headaches and nosebleeds, and by the end of the production period, he was unable to walk properly. Uh, after being hospitalized, he was diagnosed with a sinus infection caused by several abscessed teeth and had also developed a mastoid infection of the brain. Uh, after four surgeries to remove the infection, Sam Warner slipped into a coma and ended up dying of pneumonia caused by several abscesses. Okay. So basically severe infection. Yeah. Uh, dental care. Pretty much. Yeah. It's important. So, after the success of The Jazz Singer, the now cash-rich studio would use its resources to purchase First National, which was America's largest theater chain at the time, as well as being one of the top three production studios, having made its money by being the original studio for Charlie Chaplin's films. Hmm. From 1929 to 1936, Warner Brothers maintained First National as a subsidiary brand name for some of its films. Prestige pictures, musicals, and costume dramas would be released under the Warner Brothers name, while modern-day set comedies, dramas, and crime stories would come out under the first national name. After The Jazz Singer, Warner Brothers focused on a string of musicals to show off the Vitaphone system's capabilities. At this time, it's worth saying that American musicals were less narrative in nature and were more often like variety review shows of skits and songs loosely joined together by a very mild narrative. Seeking the next technological advancement in order to set them apart, Warner Brothers entered into a contract with the Technicolor Company to release a certain number of pictures over the next few years in their two-tone color film process. Now, we've seen two-tone Technicolor before mm -hmm. in the masquerade sequence of Phantom of the Opera. But that was just one scene. Correct. Uh, Warner started doing whole movies in this process. To reacquaint listeners, um, Two-Tone Technicolor was an early color film process in which two strips of film, one sensitive to green tones and the other to red tones, were shot in the camera simultaneously and then cemented together to create a color image. Remember back to your, I guess, high school science biology classes <laughs> that the human eye creates all colors through a combination of red, green, and blue? Mm -hmm. 
Technicolor, uh, Two-Tone Technicolor does the same thing, um, but just with red and green. This more limited spectrum gave the resulting films an oddly unnatural appearance, and the need to expose two strips of film at once meant doubling the lighting needed for any scene, as well as, in general, doubling costs because you needed twice as much film to shoot any picture. Right. At first, the combination of the novelty of sound and color was enough to propel Warner Brothers through a string of hit musicals. But eventually, the novelty wore off, and by 1931, audiences were tired of the narrativeless musicals and unnatural color. In the minds of American audiences, color was for musicals, and musicals were in color, and both were box office poison. In response, Jack Warner's top producer, Daryl F. Zanuck, pivoted the studio's focus entirely in another direction, building Warner Brothers a reputation as a producer of gritty, contemporary dramas, films about the social ills of urban America, crime movies, gangster movies, detective movies, movies about reporters and newspapermen dealing with issues ripped from the headlines. These were realistic, hard-hitting pictures starring fast-talking tough guys in fedoras and trench coats <laughs> with a breakneck pace thanks to studio editor George Amy. And were those in the two-tone Technicolor? These would be black and white films because Technicolor was associated with musicals. Okay. So doing them in black and white was a way to say these are gritty, realistic films, not silly musicals, and also a way to, for Warner Brothers to regain its success, given that audiences were fed up with the limitations of the two-tone Technicolor. These are movies like uh, Little Caesar and Public Enemy Number 1, you know, The Maltese Falcon, the original. Um, Would these be considered film noir? These are, these are about 10 years too early, really, to be film noir, but they're certainly the progenitors of that style. I mean, Warner Brothers basically became a studio that made the kind of movies that you could easily just see Batman, like, swinging through in the background of, like... Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I mean... But had they started adopting... Those visual styles. Exactly. No, no, these, you know, if you look at them from this this period, they don't have that visual look, which is why they're not film noir. They're just detective movies or gangster movies. But the tone is there. For which sure. Which is why they're the progenitors. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, uh, and the focus is on this kind of gritty, urban, tough, fast-talking protagonists. Yeah. What's up to there, see? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> James Cagney movies, Edward G. Robinson movies, um, this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. This house style of Warner film flourished in the pre-code era of 1930 to 1934, but wasn't particularly compatible with the kinds of horror movies that were sweeping the nation by 1932, which were largely set in non-specific fantasy locations. <laughs> Basically... Places and times other than contemporary America. Yeah. You know, if we think of the Universal films, they're set in Europe. Um, <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde was Victorian London. Uh, White Zombie was Haiti. Um, we, they're, they of really, an unknown year. Yes. Uh, they didn't really fit in with this kind of gritty urban American style that Warner Brothers had. The Warners were altogether reluctant to jump on the horror trend, but eventually they bit the bullet, buying the rights to a very minor stage play called The Terror, 
and getting their on-staff writers to take the gruesome premise of that play and build around it a typical, fast-paced newspaper drama in the Warner Brothers style. <laughs> in the process, Warner Brothers ended up creating the first contemporary American horror movie. Mm. As the script was worked on, Warner's distaste for the genre was evident in their attempt to label the film anything but horror in the early marketing material, calling it a romantic mystery thriller. <laughs> it was actually the Hayes office who pointed out when reviewing the script that it sure looked like a horror film to them. The mystery thriller label gets conflated with horror so much. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some films that I know people have asked us, are you covering this film or that film? And when looking it up, it's actually, those are mystery thrillers, not horror. Exactly. So it's interesting, yeah, genres, blurring <laughs> the lines of genres. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're doing a podcast dedicated to a certain genre, you know, you have to start really thinking about where those lines are. Yeah. While other studios at the time had to fight to keep the horror in their horror movies, the Warners were more than happy to tone down aspects of the script when asked to, and to insert more comic relief in order to appease the censors. Well, they, they weren't all that into doing horror in the first place. So exactly. The film, retitled Dr. X, went into production under the First National subsidiary banner with Michael Curtiz assigned to direct. Curtiz was born in Hungary in 1888 as Mano Kamener and had directed Hungary's first feature film in 1912. By the mid-1920s, he had directed over 60 feature films and had a high reputation for visual inventiveness. His 1926 film, Moon of Israel, so impressed the Warner Brothers with its expressionist visual style that Jack Warner offered him a contract to come to the States to work as a director for Warner Brothers under the new, anglicized name, Michael Curtiz. By 1932, Curtiz was not just one of Warner's top directors, he was also praised for his dependability, his ability to take any assignment and reliably turn it into a successful film. The expectation with Dr. X would be to come in and manage a production the Warners were exceptionally tepid over and still turn it into a hit for the studio. This is like 10 years before Casablanca? Yeah, about that. Cool. Working with Curtiz, who, as you just mentioned, would go on to such other film classics as Adventures of Robin Hood, Casablanca, The Seahawk, Captain Blood, Mildred Pierce, would be director of photography, Ray Renahan, who would handle the film's two-tone Technicolor cinematography. The decision had been made to shoot the film in the process in order to fulfill Warner's contract obligations to Technicolor regarding the number of films they had to produce so that they could be rid of the unpopular process. They had essentially <laughs> right. signed a contract saying they had to do X many films using it, but the process had become so unpopular that they just needed to burn off a couple of movies using the process so they could just stop using it. They had to burn off an X number of movies? Yes, precisely, Sarah. <laughs> Renahan worked carefully with studio art director Anton Grot, determined to make this the best-looking two-tone film ever made, using lighting, costuming, 
set design, everything visual to best take advantage of the unnatural red-green tones in order to emphasize the film's horror aspects. Ray Renahan would go on to shoot films like Gone with the Wind and For Whom the Bell Tolls and is one of only six cinematographers with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. While uh, Anton Grot, the art director for the film, is now seen as crucial to establishing the Warner Brothers studio visual style with his expressionist set designs that he used throughout his career. Interesting. And it makes so much sense to do a two-tone look of a film for horror, because it looks so unnatural. Exactly. That's why I love it in the Phantom's Masquerade scene. Like, Mm -hmm. it's so good. I'm so excited for this movie. I don't know if you guys can tell. (laughs) Without a Jack Pierce or Westmore brother on staff at the studio, the movie's monster makeup would be handled by Max Factor, who up to this point had developed a reputation primarily for beauty makeup for glamorous movie stars. With a desire to provide plenty of comic relief, the film was intended as a starring vehicle for fast-talking comedian Lee Tracy, who was famous at the time for originating the role of fast-talking witty reporter Hildy Johnson in the original Broadway play version of The Front Page. And in Dr. X, Tracy would again play a fast-talking, witty reporter. But the breakout stars of the film would actually turn out to be Lionel Atwill in the title role of Dr. Xavier, and Fay Ray as his daughter Joan. Atwill had been born in England in 1885 and had been acting on stage since 1904 and on film since 1919, but his career in film had never really taken off to any great degree. Dr. X would be his first horror film and end up giving him a successful niche in the horror genre for the rest of his career, as well as establishing him well enough with audiences for him to take on roles in other genres as well. Nice. Faye Ray was born in Cardston, Alberta, Canada in 1906. I didn't know she was Albertan. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, she's just from Cardston. That's so cool. Her family was Mormon, and they moved to Salt Lake City in 1912, and then to Hollywood in 1919. She began acting in film in 1923, and by the end of the 20s, she was considered to be, quote, on the threshold of stardom, unquote, but had yet to have any kind of breakout hit. That hit would come in 1933 with King Kong, but she got the role in that movie due to her performance in Dr. X, which was also her first horror film, and thus her first opportunity to establish what would be her most well-known asset, her scream. (laughs) Fun fact, the scream in the opening of our show is from Favre. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Is it just like her scream from King Kong? Yeah, it's from King Kong. (laughs) Okay, cool. It's weird that I hadn't Realized that after doing 32 episodes of the show. <laughs> it's from her screaming on the boat. Yeah, when she does the scream test for, sorry, the screen test for Carl Denham. Yeah, I, I should have picked that up. <laughs> Viewers used to seeing Fay with blonde hair in King Kong may be surprised to see her as a brunette here. Uh, but that was actually her natural hair color, although she put it under a henna rinse for this film in order to show it off better with the two-tone cinematography. Dr. X would be released on August 3rd, 1932, 
with urban centers receiving color prints and rural ones and international markets receiving a black and white print. The use of making black and white prints for these lesser markets uh, actually was considered a breach of contract by Technicolor, meaning that Dr. X wouldn't get Warner Brothers out of their contract with Technicolor. (laughs) Uh, After all, they would have to make another film in two-tone Technicolor. Critics... Uh, at the time, praised Lee Tracy's uh, comedic elements in Dr. X. Uh, A common critical refrain was that there should have been more of them, which is so funny because I think from a modern perspective, most people would prefer this film to just be a little more straight horror. But significantly, critics also dubbed it the best color film yet released. And theaters which had received the black and white print soon began clamoring to Warner's for the color version. The film ended up becoming a major box office hit for Warners, and its success led to the production of an immediate follow-up with Faye Ray, Lionel Atwell, Michael Curtiz directing, and much of the same crew returning, as well as being shot in two-tone Technicolor to try and (laughs) just get that contract done. Yeah. Uh, And this would be the film Mystery of the Wax Museum. Which we will be watching later. Yes. But how are we watching Dr. X? Well, um, by the late 1950s, the color version of Dr. X was presumed lost, as Technicolor themselves had discarded all of their two-tone negatives in 1948, and no prints could be found. However, after Jack Warner's death in 1978, a color print of the film was discovered in his own private vault. This was then placed in the UCLA archives, who restored it, and it is the UCLA restored version that is available on DVD from Warner Home Video and for rent on YouTube. Nice. So uh, you can find it on our Scream Scene YouTube playlist, the, uh, the rental version. To find that YouTube playlist, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, until then, we'll hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching Dr. X! <laughs> All right. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Dr. X. Sarah, you had a good time? I did. I really like this movie. I'm really excited to talk about the comedic elements of this film. Uh Uh-huh. Because I was trying to parse out why it works for me. Okay, interesting. That'll be interesting to hear about because it, um... It doesn't work for you? No, it doesn't work for me. Um, <laughs> I do think it's interesting that just how we've been watching these films, We've the movie before this we saw was White Zombie, and before that, Vampire, and all three of those films, Dr. X included, in their own unique ways, sort of push horror forward while simultaneously looking a little bit backward. Yeah. But we can maybe talk about that more after a plot summary. Yeah. So the film opens with spunky reporter Lee Taylor covering his beat by the wharf, um, and he sees another victim of the moon killer be taken into the morgue. 
the moon killer is so named because they only kill during a full moon, and it appears that this is his sixth victim. Dr. Xavier, or Xavier? 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 It doesn't matter. The pronunciations change depending on who is talking. I took down three different ones. Xavier, Xavier, and Xavier. <laughs> um, he is not running a school for gifted children. Instead, <laughs> he is conducting the autopsy of this latest victim and confirms that this victim, like the others, has been strangled by both hands and has suffered a scalpel Scapel? Scapel. Wound to the brainstem uh, at the back of the neck. Also, there's been signs of cannibalism. Yes. The police turn to Dr. Xavier, claiming that all evidence from these previous cases leads back to his surgical research center, specifically regarding the special scalpels they import from Venice or something. Vienna. Xavier's like, okay, uh, all right, I guess I'll show you to the other people who happen to be here at this time of night. The research center is on break, so there's no students or anything, but there are a few dedicated professors who are now all considered suspects. So Dr. Xavier, taking the police around, introduces the police to Professor Wells, who studies cannibalism. Uh, and interestingly, he's kept a human heart beating for the last several years, through electricity. Electrolysis. Electrolysis. Uh, but he's quickly ruled out because he has a missing hand. Mm-hmm. And we know that the people were strangled with both hands. Exactly. Uh, next to be introduced is Professor Haynes, who is a creeper. Yeah, that's kind of his deal. Like, he's studying the brain, but his primary attribute is that he's, like, a huge perv. Um, he inquires about Dr. Xavier's daughter in, like... Like, oh, nice to see you. How is your daughter, hey? Yeah. Uh, in a very creepy way. And he was also, like, looking at, like, a scandalous magazine when people came in. So, bit of a creep. The other reason why he's a possible suspect is uh, he, a year or so ago, was on an expedition with uh, two other professors. And they were stranded for 24 days. And one of the professors just disappeared, and uh, Professor Haynes doesn't talk about it. Yeah, they got shipwrecked near Tahiti, and when they got rescued, there was a, a professor missing, and they were otherwise all out of food. Yes. Suspicious. Then, next to be introduced is Professor Duke, who is confined to a wheelchair and is a real grouch. Uh, and then last to be introduced is Professor Rowitz, uh, who is the other surviving professor with Haynes. He studies effects of the moon on people, um, and he has a notable scar and kind of monocle, sunglass monocle thing on his face. He's considered the main suspect because witnesses saw a man with a deformed face committing these murders. In an effort to avoid bad press on the research facility, Dr. Xavier convinces the detectives to give him 48 hours to find the killer and his staff himself through his own experiments about repressed memories and urges. Meanwhile, through this whole sequence, Spunky reportedly has impersonated a corpse to get into the morgue and uh, has overheard parts of this conversation and has also climbed to the fire escape outside to follow the police investigation. Um, but he is caught by Dr. Xavier's daughter, Joan. Or Joanne. Joanne. <laughs> yeah, she goes by both. And so they get introduced to each other in that way. 
Um, By her pointing a gun at him. Yeah, she's she's very great. I really like Joan. Other notable characters are Otto, who is Xavier's creepy butler. Creepy not in the same way as Professor Haynes. He's just, you know, the the butler that looks like he could be the murderer. Well, I think it's, like, unique that everyone in this movie, other than spunky reporter Lee Taylor and Joan Xavier, are set up to be potentially the murderer. You're supposed to think that they, they all could do it. Even Xavier himself, who has a tendency to say things like, meddling fools, once <laughs> other people are out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other notable character to mention is Mammy, who is Joan's maid. Uh, sometimes it sounds like they're saying Minnie. I think also I heard Mamie sometimes. What we're getting across here is that pronunciation was not a priority on this set. <laughs> So because Lee publishes his story from what he overheard that night, uh, Xavier decides to conduct his tests at his um, second, his, his vacation home in, on Long Island, known as Cliff Manor at Blackstone Shoals. Um, it's a dark, creepy house with electrical and alchemical equipment uh, strewn about in uh, various rooms. Secret passageways. Yeah. Spunky reporter Lee follows them there for his story, and he breaks in. Um, so the first night that they're there, they are conducting experiments, with Otto and Mammy reenacting the latest murder to test what is essentially a lie detector test type thing attached to all of the suspects except for Wells because he's been ruled out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's including Xavier, Haynes, Duke, and Rowitz. Um, and basically they're hooked up to this machine that, through science, um, as their heartbeat goes up because their repressed memories and urges are excited, a bell will go off to indicate who is most excited with the reenactment of this murder. Yeah, they're testing, like, their blood, I think, specifically. Like, the idea that your blood's getting, like, excited or whatever, and there's these, like, gauges that are attached to everyone, yeah. During this experiment and reenactment, the lights go off and panic abounds, and it ends with, Rowitz dead? His bell goes off, and so they think, oh, Rowitz is the murderer. And then, uh, as Xavier exclaims that, uh, Rowitz screams, and he's been killed uh, in the same manner as the rest of the victims with a scalpel to the back of the head. Mm -hmm. The other significant thing with this first night is Lee is discovered. Uh, He had been... From someone unknown, presumably the murderer, uh, he was uh, gassed and had fainted. Um, But Lee is found, and um, thanks to Joan's charm, he won't publish his story until later. uh, And that leads into their love subplot. And the idea is supposed to be that he's going to, like, stay the weekend at the house continue getting information, but wait till Xavier can, like, finish his experiments. Exactly. Um, sometime during this night, Xavier and Haynes also find that parts of Rowitz's body have been cannibalized. The second night, Mommy is too hysterical to help with the experiment, so Joan steps in because she sees how much stress is going on her father, and uh, she wants to help in whatever way she can. This time, all participants, Xavier, Haynes, and Duke are handcuffed during the experiment and Wells leaves the room and locks the door behind him so no one can get in or out. Just as we see Wells leave and uh, people finish getting handcuffed and everything, someone asks, well, what about Wells? Shouldn't he be 
handcuffed or something. Cut to Wells, reacting strangely to the moon, heavy breathing and such. He removes his prosthetic hand um, and puts on this creepy-looking monster hand, <laughs> whispering things like synthetic flesh, and just goes a little crazy with science. Um, we see that he can feel pain through this synthetic hand, so clearly something is going on, and through some really neat, crazy, weird science cuts and everything like that, he starts putting on like this flesh, this synthetic flesh clay onto his face, and he transforms into the moon killer. We see when he's doing this a lot of electrical stuff going on in the room at the same time, uh, little like Tesla coils and things going off. My favorite detail is that he covers his whole head in this synthetic flesh and kind of forms it into a disfigured face like clay, including molding it over his hair. And then, and he, then puts he puts on a, a wig, wig on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So after we see him transform into the moon killer, he sneaks through a, a secret passage and sneaks up behind Otto and kills him in order to go attack Joan during the reenactment as he's being very creepy and is kind of like choking her, but also like he drags it out by explaining his backstory and gives this like speech about, you know, who he is, his wish to cure the disabled world, how he needs to kill in order to get living flesh for his experiment. So it's not cannibalism, but just using that human flesh for his experiments. And as he's delivering the speech and how he plans to kill everyone, Lee comes out, who's been missing up until this point for this whole day, fights him, tosses an oil lamp at Wells, and on fire, Wells crashes through a window and falls to a fiery death down to the cliffs below. Sort of the end, basically. There's yeah. some comedic and romantic relief after that. We, like, we, we know that Lee and, and Joan are going to bone the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ben, what are your thoughts? Probably the number one thing to me that's notable and memorable about Dr. X is the visual elements. Mm -hmm. um, the cinematography, the set design, costumes, the editing. They all come together with the two-tone Technicolor to create a thoroughly unforgettable visual experience. It's striking in its bold and bizarre use of light and color. They take advantage of the fact that it's a horror film in order to not have to light things very realistically. In addition to a lot of, you know, dark shadows and stuff that we've seen in black and white films, they'll also just throw, like, green or red colored lights onto people in dramatic scenes. And I feel the effect that the color use gives the film is kind of the feeling of, like, the lurid, grotesque atmosphere of, like, horror pulp magazine covers. Yeah, definitely. Um, or even like the horror comic books that would come much later. You know, you don't have that kind of eerie refinement that you have with black and white. Instead, it feels a lot more gruesome just because we're seeing it in color. And I feel like the eerie atmosphere that it all kind of contributes to makes it feel like anything is possible. So when it becomes this idea of synthetic flesh and like he's covering himself in this clay... It's, like, thrilling and horrifying, not funny. Yeah, for sure, yeah. The movie does a good job of... So I don't really like the comic relief stuff in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, you're saying you do, and we'll probably get into that a bit later. But I do think it's to the movie's credit that it 
separates out its comic relief parts and its horror parts mm -hmm. um, so that the horror parts do get to be kind of fully bizarre and horrific and grotesque and then the comic relief parts sort of happen in other scenes somewhere else. Yeah, I think like the best example of the fact that it does that and that it's like the movie's like we're doing this it's not just a matter of the the way it was edited or anything it's the fact that Lee faints he gets drugged before the first experiment, and mm -hmm. then he's just missing uh, yeah, for the second He falls down, one. like, a trap door or something, and we don't really see him for a while, and then he just kind of shows up out of nowhere. To start punching. Yeah, at the end. So the fact that our main comedic relief character is missing during the two scenes that are at its most horrific, I think really shows that the film wanted these scenes or sequences to stand on their own horrific feet. I would completely agree with that. I think for me, the problem that I have with the comic relief stuff isn't so much the amount of it or how it's integrated into the film uh, as it is the actual character of Lee Taylor himself, as played by Lee Tracy. Yeah. Um, like, you kept calling him, like, Spunky Reporter Lee, and I, that gives me the feeling that, like, you kind of like this character. Um, I was trying to get across the feeling of, like, he won't be stopped. Like, he keeps going to try to get into that morgue. And we sure. don't even see how he pretends to be a corpse <laughs> to get in. Sure. I think, for me, the character doesn't quite work as well. He's believable as a reporter. To my line of thinking, he's more of a paparazzi tabloid scumbag style reporter than, like, say, a crusading seeker of truth, right? Like, it's, it's made very clear that what matters to him in terms of getting the story is so that he can get a paycheck. A not, sensational story as well. Yeah, he's, you know, so he's not quite like your, your Clark Kent Lois Lane, like, I'm going to do anything so the public knows. It's more of a, like, I'm going to do anything so I can eat this month kind of thing. If he was a reporter that was like Lois or even Clark Kent, I don't think he would have held off the story, though. Like, in the same, right? Mm. Like, he's willing to hold off because Joan is cute. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a believability to the fact that he's this more, like, sleazy kind of reporter. But for me, it makes it a little bit hard to root for him as a protagonist. He gets a lot of these long slapstick sequences in the film that are primarily based around him sort of scaring himself with his own shadow as he wanders around the house. And like we said, his story is largely detached from the main story. There's kind of this main plot of Lionel Atwell as Dr. Xavier uncovering the murderer, and then there's this other plot of Lee wandering around the house spooking himself in slapstick scenes, and what connects them is the, the Joan character. Well, and the fact that Lee is investigating and covering the, the, story, the story. Sure, itself. I mean, like, like in terms of, though, who gets to sort of be in both parts of the movie, it's, it's Joan, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, the humor of his character, uh, whether you like it or not, um, generally seems to stem from his character attributes as being greedy or cowardly or smarmy. He's kind of like a weaselly kind of character. So when the story has to make him the romantic lead, it becomes a bit of a stretch for me. Like when he tells Joan that he cares about her safety more than the story, it's kind of hard to believe it or to take it as anything other than yet another self-serving lie because he does that so often. 
do you not like the comedy or do you not like the romance? Because I'm not a big fan of the romance, but I think the comedy is fine. I think my problem with the comedy is that the comic relief character and the character who is structurally the lead romantic lead protagonist are the same guy. It's it's a structural issue for me. His sudden arrival at the end of the film to fight off and destroy the monster kind of feels out of nowhere, and it's a bit hard to follow that this, like, effete coward suddenly becomes, like, a man of action. He really does just appear there, hey? Yeah. He, it's just like the camera cuts and suddenly he's on stage. Yeah, like, I f it sort of feels like the implication is that, like, he's pretending to be, like, one of the wax figures in the little, like, diorama that they have set up for the experiment, but it's it's a little bit unclear. The movie sort of ends trying to give you this impression that, like, Joan's fallen in love with him after everything else that's happened in the film, but it, to me, really feels more just like he just saved her life from a giant psychotic monster, so he's gonna get some, but, like, their relationship probably won't last much longer after the, like, joy buzzer sex they have in the dark when the movie ends. Yeah, the film itself tries to be like, they're gonna get married, but no, they... It'll be a fling, and then she'll be like, yeah, you're not good enough for me. Yeah, you're, you're kind of an, a scumbag. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think it's probably the romance that doesn't really work for me, and the fact that because the movie has made the comic relief character the protagonist, it centers that comic relief stuff a little bit more than maybe it should be. That's, that's more my issue. Like I already said, I'm not a huge fan of the romance, really just because... I feel like Joan should be her own independent lady. She does a pretty good job of it for most of the movie, too. Yeah. She has some good lines turning him down. I feel like I'm more on the side of this movie balancing the horror and comedy more than where you are at. And I suspect it's because of the two-tone technicolor. Like, the aesthetics of horror are throughout the entire film. It doesn't feel like oh, we're back in the comedy scene, so let's turn it down. So sure. I, I suspect it's something to do with the two-tone technicolor. I mean, when, when he's wandering around the mansion, getting spooked by random nonsense, like, they still shoot everything as shadowy and mysterious as they do the rest of the movie. Yeah, Visually, so there's, there's that through line. So it feels like a comic character in a horror movie. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, the way he bumbles around this house really reminded me of Buster Keaton in the short The Haunted Mansion. Okay. Where it's like, it's not actually haunted. He just like sees it as such. And it's just like these criminals dressed up in skeletons to try like <laughs> rob the house or something. Um, yeah, it just like funny like that. I do think sometimes, for my money, it goes on a little too long. Like, they, they let him play out these, like, things where, like, I almost want to yell at him, like, yes, you're in a room full of medical skeletons. You don't have to be freaked out by each individual one. <laughs> there are times where I feel like, especially that closet scene mm -hmm. with the skeletons, that one definitely, I feel like it goes on too long. And I suspect that, I don't know how, how common this practice was, certainly not as common as it is now, but Michael Curtis being like, yeah, just just improv, and we'll just film whatever you improv. Yeah, it does have that, like, the scenes that Lee Tracy is only in with himself, mm -hmm. like, where he's not having to share them with other people, like, the bit where he wakes up in the morgue and kind of goofs around the morgue for a while before leaving, or that scene in the closet, or some of the others. I agree with you that they have that feeling of him kind of, like, vamping around the set, just kind of making things up off the cuff. Yeah. As you know, Ben, I hate it in modern movies, 
it for some reason spikes my anxiety. Mm. And here it doesn't spike my anxiety as much, but I do find it a little tiresome with those scenes. For sure. I think the other reason why the comedy kind of works for me is besides his bumbling slapstick moments, like those two scenes are really like the biggest culprits, um, most of the comedy comes through dialogue and that doesn't really undercut horror in the same way. Sure. I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things that makes this a little bit unique compared to previous slapstick horror comedies we've seen, like The Monster or The Bat or The Cat and the Canary, is this is a sound film, and it's coming from the Warner Brothers studio that kind of mastered that kind of fast-paced, witty dialogue style. Yeah. Uh, so we get a lot of that kind of thing from Lee Tracy's character. Yeah, versus um, The Bat Whispers, where it's dialogue, it, was, it felt like a stage play, like how much dialogue was being delivered, the sound equipment, it wasn't really utilized to its best effect. Well, um, and how dry the dialogue was, too. It didn't have that kind of alive, excitement. yeah, yeah, that kind of quick quickness that makes it feel like it's sort of alive rather than just words on a page. Exactly. When I watch this movie and I see... Lee Taylor wandering around this big mansion. I, I just can't help thinking that, like, medical science must have paid much better in 1932 than maybe it does now, because, like, here we are in the midst of the Great Depression, and the head of this research science institute is wealthy enough for a very large New York City home and this, like, positively gothic Long Island beachside manor. And I'm just like, you have a well-funded institution, my sir. <laughs> That's why he doesn't want the bad press. Yeah, for sure. So Fay Ray's great, right? She is great. The plot with her needed to have her do more, because really the only thing she does in terms of the horror plot is play damsel in distress. She doesn't really get much to do. What she does with what she has is great. It's, it's worth saying that we can criticize sort of the damsel in distress archetype in these old movies while, you know, still acknowledging that, and, and we brought this up in um, Murders in the Rue Morgue, in fact, that, like, Fay Ray, like, makes the damsel in distress stuff work because she's very, very good at it. Yes. Um, so that, like, even though she doesn't have a lot to do other than lie around and scream when the killer comes... Even though there's not really much character for her, she has enough presence of her own that the character isn't so empty that you don't really care whether she lives or dies. Yeah, and I think a lot of that shines through when she's able to be witty mm -hmm. or uh, having that battle of like snappy dialogue with Lee. Lee. Yeah, she gets to have a lot of that back and forth. The fact that like her first scene, the very first thing she ever does in the movie is she screams for kind of next to no reason. And then her second scene is her pointing a gun at Lee and telling him to get out of here. And that really speaks to, like, the kind of dichotomy of her character in this movie a Definitely. lot. She reflects this very unique position that you see a lot of women characters in, in pre-code films, in that they're often, like, feisty and independent in equal measure with being helpless and in need of a man. Yeah, when she's in peril uh, during the reenactment and the climax of the film, she, like, faints when the guy is being attacked, when mm -hmm. the monster is being attacked. 
so she can't get away fully out of danger until later. Mm -hmm. um, and then the minute that she is, and she wakes up, and she grabs the keys to start unlocking people from their handcuffs, her next piece of dialogue is like, no, I'm okay. If you're not familiar with the film, listeners, like if you just sort of are listening here but didn't watch the movie along with us, her romance with Lee follows a very typical 1930s, 40s movie pattern of he's an ass and she can't stand him, but then they fall in love that you'd recognize from, like... His Girl Friday. I will say that, like, I do like that she gets to not put up with his shit for most of the movie, and she really only falls for him after her life has been saved. She's on that adrenaline high. Otherwise, she gets to have lines like, he says, like, if I was swimming and drowning, wouldn't you help me? And she says something like, I'd throw you an anvil. Like, good stuff like that. Yeah. Let's talk about Xavier. Okay. Because Professor Xavier is really, really cool. Okay. Um, I like how he's allowed to have the lines of those meddling fools once the police leave. That, out of our three... I guess, protagonists of Lee, Joan, and Xavier, he gets to equally be as much of a, a suspect or potentially be the murderer as much as, like, his colleagues. Yeah, It's he's... not like, oh, because he's our protagonist, he must not be. He, he like, willingly goes underneath the same experiments to be like, I, I could be the murderer too, like, who knows? These are all repressed urges. We don't really know who it is. Mm -hmm. If anything, I'd say that he's a very strong red herring because he's the title character and the title characters of the last couple movies we've watched haven't been Jonathan Harker or Henry <laughs> Clerval, right? Like like they've been Frankenstein and like Dracula, like these movies get named after the villains more often than not. So I would think that he'd be a pretty strong red herring for audiences of the time just based on genre conventions. Definitely. I like all the professors in this movie because they have to be so idiosyncratic as to have, like, one trait that makes them definitely the murderer and one trait that means that they can't possibly be the murderer. So it just creates, like, the weirdest group of, like, eccentric faculty members that you've ever <laughs> seen at, like, any kind of university. Yeah, and they also need to have something that makes them unique, because otherwise you're suddenly introduced to, like, four or five professors, one after another, and you're like... And they're all old white guys. Yeah, so it's like, okay, who, who are all these people? Yeah, so they all get, like, a visual thing where, like, Haynes looks like he's Hugo Strange from a Batman comic, and, like, Rowitz has the, like, mad... German scientist look to him, and Duke's in the wheelchair, and Wells has the prosthetic hand. So they're all, like, these extremely memorable people, even though they are pretty small roles with negligible screen time. Um, I have to say, though, every time we watch this movie and Rowitz is introduced, I'm just like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Fay Ray gets to benefit from the two-tone Technicolor in a different way from the rest of the movie, where most of the movie is about kind of looking as bizarre as possible. But with her, she's got the kind of dark auburn hair and the blush in her makeup and these, like, really nice silk green uh, house robes that she wears. So she's, she's always very visually set up to look very good uh, in this color spectrum. Yeah, the costume designer, I think for everyone, but specifically for Fay Ray, 
did a fantastic job of making sure that she stood out in the midst of these red and green uh, sets and mm -hmm. stuff. Like, there are hallways in this mansion that are clearly, like, they must have been painted green with, like, how well they stand out with, like, the light and shadow. And she stands out in the midst of these. Mm -hmm. She's really great. When we're looking at this film, the question comes up of, like, what genre does it really fall into? We've talked a bit about the horror parts of it. We've talked a bit about the comedy parts of it. We've even addressed the romance parts of it. Um, there's other parts of this movie that could almost just be kind of a straight crime thriller. Like, this movie could very easily fit into the modern, like, Criminal Minds style <laughs> crime drama, kind of post-Thomas Harris novels. Uh, <laughs> this kind of modern era of crime fiction that we're in, where you have, like, a, a scientifically-minded lead character leading an investigation to uncover a serial killer who's motivated by a unique <laughs> pathology... CSI New York. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's it's sort of retrospectively hilarious that at the start of the movie, the police find the idea of a psychotic serial killer who kills only in specific ways to be, like, hard to believe. Like, Xavier's explained to them, like, he must have some trauma, some obsession that he must act out in specific circumstances when he murders people. And the cops are like, ah, that's a crazy story, Doc. And it's like, no, that's the premise of every crime movie for the past 30 years. Like, it's, it's sort of ridiculous. You know, between the fact that the killer kills at the full moon and that there's the cannibalism stuff, he's basically the tooth fairy from the... Uh, novel Red Dragon and Hannibal Lecter, like, put together. Law and Order, Special Crimes Unit. <laughs> um, I feel like what manages to push the movie into horror, other than the, the visuals, is the way that it takes this crime mystery story about a serial killer and who is it, and connects it to horror by sort of setting it in the traditional old dark house structure of these earlier movies like Cat in the Canary or The Bat, as well as utilizing the newer, like, sound horror cliché of the mad scientist creating a monster. Um, and both of those things are kind of what gives the movie a feeling of a horror film instead of the feeling of just, like, a police crime in mystery story. Thriller. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. The moment when the film really, like, is, like, no, this is going to be horror, is when uh, it's after we've been through the, like, introduce all the professors, whatever, and Lee's been scared off from Fei-Rei with a gun, and he's sitting, like, just, like, on the beach, just kind of, like, trying to, like, light a cigarette or something, and we see presumably the moon killer, because it's like a deformed face, he's kind of creeping, and he introduces himself with creepy hands, mm -hmm. um, sneaking up on Lee, and then uh, Lee got a, a trick cigar from a, a policeman earlier, and he lights it, and it, like, does that explodey thing, uh, and that scares off the murderer. So I think, like, that's the moment of, like, when you see that just a random reporter who has been set up to be a protagonist, he's the first guy we see, is under threat that early in the film. Mm -hmm. I think that's what set, helps set it up as horror. And certainly the conventions at this point in the genre of horror movies having 
these makeup heavy monsters and mad scientists and spooky houses and and all these kinds of stuff, right? Full moons and yeah. dark shadows. Yeah, exactly. There's also a lot of elements of this movie that feel distinctly pre-production code to me, pre-haze code. Like you've got the cannibalism, there's a suggestion that maybe the victims have been raped that's never really addressed. Yeah, I don't know where you got that from. Oh, I did not see that. It's the scene where, before the first experiment, Haynes, who's kind of the perv, is like, were the victims attacked? And then before anyone, uh, like, before um, Xavier gets to answer him, Rowett says, does your dirty mind always have to go down such channels or whatever? But he never actually gets that question answered and attacked is clearly a a euphemism um obviously from what we learn later the answer is no but the suggestion is there yeah there's the the porno mag that haynes has there's the fact that at one point like lee needs to use a telephone and just casually strolls into a brothel and uses their phone like a bunch of stuff that you just wouldn't see in a hollywood movie in two years question for you Mm -hmm. so We've already talked about, even in this episode, how there's censorship going on. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that different from when the production code comes in? What makes so this the, pre-code, even though it's still wrestling with censors? So the Hayes office and the Hayes code was established in 1930. What changed between 1930 and 1934 was there was no enforcement before 1934. There was no real... Like, the censor's notes were suggestions. Um, And it was the idea that, like, you probably should follow this, otherwise you might have trouble in certain markets in America that were more um, religious or more conservative, morally. Um, But there was nothing that said that you couldn't release a film if you didn't pass the censor board. Um, What happened in 1934 was it was decided that if you didn't get a certificate of approval from the Hayes office, you couldn't release your movie. What changed to make it that you needed that certificate? Uh, the fact that, like, everyone made movies between 1930 and 1934 that were, like... Horror movies? Horror movies, but, like, also, like, crazy, like, sex comedies and, like, violent crime films and all kinds of stuff. Really what happened, and, like, I'll probably talk more about this in a future episode, closer to when this occurs. Yeah. Um, but an organization was founded called the Catholic League of Decency, who were threatening to, like boycott films and run their own censor boards and stuff, and under the threat of having someone else come in and censor them, the Hollywood studios decide they'd rather just give the Hayes office power when beforehand they'd kind of just been a paper tiger that existed to just appease morality groups. Mm. Um, And at the threat of having an actual powerful group uh, oppose their films, they decide to actually give them some enforcement power. The enemy I know. Yeah, exactly. And I, I suspect I'll have more to talk about this when we when we get closer to 1934. That makes sense. It's it's sort of interesting to speculate on the possible influence this movie had on, on future creators. Um, I've mentioned, obviously, the, like, psychopath serial killer genre. But the, the scenes where Xavier tests everyone's blood to determine who the killer is, to me, feel like a pretty uncanny mirror of the blood test scene in John Carpenter's The Thing. Is John Carpenter someone who would, like, be referen- Like, you could make a guess that he's referencing that? I mean, potentially. Um, the Thing itself is a remake of a 1950s horror film. So I I would think it's reasonable to say that he probably has some knowledge of classic cinema. You know, I don't know for sure, but the scenes feel so 
similar in, like, style and intent that, like, I just can't help but think of that scene in The Thing when I watch this movie. Okay. We've talked already how this film was designed to kind of fit into the Warner Brothers aesthetic canon uh, with, like, the reporter narrative. And so the Art Deco font (laughs) on the signs probably fit in the Warner canon as well. Yes. And that's probably why we see that in the Batman animated series. Oh, for sure. But, like, there's that. But I'm also thinking of Clayface. Like, I know the original Clayface in the Batman comics comes from Lon Chaney, Mm -hmm. really, but he's putting clay on his face. Like, I'm sure that visually... Yeah, yeah, visually, a lot of it comes from this movie, too. Yeah, there's... The fact of the matter is, is that, like, Batman the Animated Series, in addition to being this homage to the comics, really also decided to fit itself into the traditional Warner aesthetic canon of this era. Yeah. A lot of Batman references this episode. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think we've already kind of alluded to the fact that this film has a rampaging killer or monster. Once he's killed, the fear is gone. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I just kind of wanted to like point it out explicitly that I'm pretty sure that this film's fear is just... Ah, there's a killer on the loose, and he's in the house. Or, like, or alternatively... It, it could be one of us. Yeah, it could be one of us, which is the same fear in The, the Thing. Yeah. Um, or alternatively, just a very generic, like, science is the fear, right? I, I feel like, though, because the police trust the scientist to find out who the killer is through science, I, I don't think it's actually science has gone too far. The only thing I was thinking, and I I was, like, kind of squinting to see this, like, connecting the dots, I don't think this is actually the film's intent, is how far one is willing to go for success. We kind of recall with the professors, you know, the Dr. Xavier is explaining how, you know, all of the students are on break, this is the only time for these professors to actually work on their own personal research. And having been an academic... Um, the push to constantly be working, even when you should probably be on break to avoid burnout, like, it's very... People would be working at the university mm-hmm, yeah. late into the night. Yeah, like, the cops don't understand it, and Xavier's basically like, hey, that's academic life, yo. And it's cops! Yeah. Like, the other profession that's known for staying out way too late <laughs> to do re- like to investigate crimes. Um, and then also with Wells's speech about um, getting his name in the history books for discovering this, um, being like the one to cure ailments in this way, um, that Xavier and the others in the room will also go into history as being part of this discovery because they'll be victims. Um, and also that like when he refocuses his deadly intent on Faye Ray's character, Um, It's with the line that, Dr. Xavier, you've given your whole life to science, and now you will give the one thing you have left, your daughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think you're not squinting too hard to see that there's a condemnation of hubris and ambition and working too hard in the service of some goal uh, Mm -hmm. in this movie. 
But those themes are also really common to just the mad scientist trope in general. Exactly. That's why I'm like, I don't think that's explicitly the fear within this movie. Um, I think the fear is, there's a killer on the loose. Another thing that I was sort of reluctant to talk about in terms of where this film directs its fear is the fear of, like, the disabled or the disfigured. Where it's, it's you know, our suspects must be evil because... You know, they've got a scar, or they're in a wheelchair, or they are missing an arm. Like, they're all these suspects who are disfigured or disabled in some way, and ultimately, like, that's Wells's motivation, is that his synthetic flesh is going to allow him to cure a crippled world, as he puts it. Um, which must have struck some chords, um, you know, coming, like, 13 years or so after World War One. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, if there was perhaps a fear of the retribution that disabled people might take upon the rest of society if they all had synthetic flesh, right, to, to go and, and, and take their revenge like Wells does. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, I think, a little bit vague ideas in this movie that don't quite coalesce into anything solid. And I think that's because it's not really the film's focus either, right? Like, we were seeing themes that were present in Frankenstein, for mm -hmm. example, with the idea of, like, reaching for God and hubris there, but it's more explicit. Um, the idea of reproduction without women, and also of the persecution of gay men mm -hmm. at the time, that, like you made a very, very strong case for it not just being an implied theme, but being explicit, given that the lead actor and the director are experiencing that discrimination. Whereas in this film, it's there, but, like, it's not... It doesn't have, like, the spotlight on it in the same way. Yeah, this film creatively doesn't quite have the same courage of conviction as these other horror movies. And, I mean, that came out when I was discussing its production and how Warner's was a little bit tepid about making a horror film. So ultimately, the elements that make it horror come more from production mm -hmm. than, say, the story or the writing, um, yeah. which is a little bit more by the numbers. For my money, Dr. X is a great horror movie until it isn't. Um, <laughs> which basically means, for me, the scenes with Lee Tracy in them while those scenes are as competently shot as the rest of the movie, they sort of belong to a different film or a different genre. And the choice to make the comic relief character the romantic lead shows a timidness on Warner Brothers' parts that harkens back for me to the horror films of the 20s, like The Bat or The Cat in the Canary, where the romantic lead of those films, or the monster even, was this kind of cowardly bumbler. Even though, at the same time, the Lionel Atwell scenes of Dr. Xavier and his experiments and his investigation push the horror genre further mm -hmm. in terms of their visual and narrative gruesomeness, right? This is sort of the first film I think we've seen that really revels in talking about the gory details. Not that we see any of the gory details, that would be, you know, scandalous, but we, we talk <laughs> about them, right? Yeah. Um, so this, you know, and that's why when we started, I said that this movie kind of reminded me of the last two we've watched, where Vampire was this silent style horror movie coming out in a sound era, 
um, White Zombie tried to be like an expressionist horror film while still being in sound. This movie does the same thing of kind of reaching back to silent film horror while at the same time pushing the genre forward, but instead of those other two films which both kind of reached back into German expressionism, this movie reaches back into that American horror comedy era. But at the same time, like, Vampire had a lot of really cool stylistic things. White Zombie had a lot of really interesting, cool stylistic things. So does this movie, right? Mm -hmm. So they all kind of visually pushed forward while in some other ways looked back. Definitely. Definitely. Like, I think this is a, a good movie and it's worth seeing. Um, but as horror, it is a little bit compromised and occasionally frustrating in the way that it looks back and pushes forward at the same time. To kind of speak in a meta way, it's interesting how the first horror film set in contemporary America mm -hmm. is also one that is harking back to that distinctly American horror comedy genre. For sure, yeah, because that's where, you know, the antecedents are. It makes, it make that's where the precedent is, right? It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I, I think people should see this movie. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're going to move into ranking? Yes. Okay. So what was your range for Dr. X? All right. So when first trying to decide where to rank it, I looked at um, the top few horror comedy films. Sure. So that's The Cat and the Canary at number eight. And then The Bat at number 19. Right. That's a fairly wide range. Exactly. So then I tried to narrow it down, and it kind of got me thinking about, like, why does this comedy work in this film versus when it didn't work in... Like, for example, when I, it didn't feel like it worked for me in The Bat Whispers, or the reasons you gave for why it didn't work for you it, with The Bat. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't really figure it out... Except to say that, like, for me, this does feel like a comic character in horror. And how, like, the film does ex make the two horrific scenes of the experiments stand in the horror genre explicitly with Lee disappearing slash being knocked out during those two scenes. Mm -hmm. That being said, uh, I would not want to put it near The Cat and the Canary and number eight. So I, I started looking at the last few that we had seen. And so I'm kind of looking right in around the Murders in the Rue Morgue. I hesitate about this, but putting it above Murders in the Rue Morgue, uh, which is currently sitting at number 17, below that is Genuina, and then below that is The Bat. I feel hmm. like this is better than The Bat, but I don't know if it's better than Murders in the Rue Morgue. Okay, so I have kind of a similar range. I'm looking in a similar sort of spot. I made the top of my range to be number 15, uh, the original Student of Prague. I felt that on a visual level, Dr. X, you could argue, exceeds the original Student of Prague mm -hmm. and does a better job at being horrific than that film, which is kind of sometimes a bit more theoretically horrific than um, <laughs> practically. Um, that being said, I didn't want to go any higher than White Zombie. We just watched White Zombie last week, and I just felt like there wasn't really a way I could justify putting Dr. X higher than that because of the prevalence of comic relief. So that was where I ended up with my ceiling. And then my floor was number 18, Genuina, where I felt like an argument could be made that Murders in the Rue Morgue is superior to Dr. X, but I didn't really feel like I could rank Dr. X below Genuina. I felt like it was, it was definitely better than that film because 
the production design and the visuals of Dr. X are much better integrated into the overall film than in Genuina, which kind of just copied Cabinet of Dr. Caligari's visual style without really any thought for how it affected the story. Yeah. It's a pretty small range. It basically means that I could put this movie at, you know, 15, 16, 17, or 18. Thinking about Murders in the Rue Morgue, where this movie is similar to that is the tone shifts. Yes, this balances the tone shifts way better than Murders in the Rue Morgue. Exactly. The, the While still covering, like, some pretty heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. The stuff in Murders in the Rue Morgue felt like the movie trying to distract you from the fact that it was a horror film. Like, as if it was pulling some sort of magic trick where it was going, no, 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 you didn't see a scene where Bela Lugosi just tortured a prostitute in an underground laboratory. Here's, here's a picnic. You never saw that scene. Yeah. Um... Whereas I feel Dr. X, as much as there's a lot of comic relief and as much as I don't think it was a good idea to make the protagonist a comedian, the comic relief feels more like relief where he's skulking around in the darkness and then he bumps into something and screams and we all scream and then we get relieved when we see it's just a medical skeleton or something. So I do think it's, it's balanced out a bit better and the fact that the visual style of this film is consistent throughout as well speaks in its favor. Yeah, I think the reason why I was like struggling with Murders in the Remorgue is totally agree. The horrific scenes in Murders in the Remorgue and its transgressive plot elements and everything, I find it convinces me of that horror more than this. Yeah, like, Maybe it's because of all of the like CSI Law and Order all of that stuff that, like, watching that growing up, which <laughs> a, a kid should not do, maybe I'm just desensitized to the idea of a crazy murderer mm. going to these extreme lengths. Yeah, I feel like the whole, like, psychopath serial killer thing was probably a little more novel in 1932 than it is now. Yeah. Um, and, like, the mad science stuff is fun. I do agree that, like, what horror is in Murders in the Remorgue is better than what horror is in... Dr. X, primarily because none of the scientists in Dr. X really match Bela Lugosi in terms of, like, their megalomanias. And I think it's because all of them have to simultaneously be possibly good and possibly the bad guy, whereas Bela Lugosi is just clearly the bad guy from Jump Street and can really just go for it. <laughs> the cast in this movie is far more well-balanced that's true. That's very true. I'm more interested in more people in the cast in this film, whereas Rumor really it was just Bela and no one else. And the reason I bring up the balance of the cast is because right above Murders in the Rumor is the original Eerie Tales, mm. where Conrad Veidt, some dude, some chick, yeah, it's whose the, names I don't remember. <laughs> it's three actors sort of cycling through each story. And I feel like they're all on the same level as well. The sections of that film that do horror are pretty spooky. How do you feel about how well they convey horror versus Dr. X conveying horror? That's tough. Dr. X wins so much with me just by visuals alone sometimes, but I think that some of the stories in Eerie Tales are better spooky ghost stories than this, where on a you know, on paper, I'd say Eerie Tales is superior to this. On paper, Dr. X doesn't really have much. What makes Dr. X work is Michael Curtiz and uh, Ray Ranahan and 
Anton Gort working together to create this very memorable visual style. Cool. So I'm I'm pretty comfortable with as we've kind of narrowed it down through our discussion having it go below Eerie Tales but above Murders in the Rue Morgue, um, specifically because of how Dr. X is more balanced in all of its elements, from cast to narrative, uh, everything, compared to Murders in the Rue Morgue. Mm -hmm. As much as I feel like Murders in the Rue Morgue, its horrific scenes are more terrifying, it tries to distract you, as you said, whereas this, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that ultimately one of the things that maybe helped Dr. X was when the studio making it got cold feet about making a horror film, they got cold feet at the writing process stage of things. Not the production process. Yeah, whereas Universal making Where's the Remore got cold feet at like the production and post-production sections leading to a lot of that movie having this very uneven feeling um, that Dr. X doesn't have. Yeah. Despite them both having some tepidness around their horror elements. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, entering the list at number 17, uh, below Eerie Tales but above Murders in the Rue Morgue, is Dr. X from 1932, directed by Michael Curtiz. If you would like to see this list, you can check our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There is also where you'll find the playlist to watch other films, and also uh, see where the other films that we've watched rank in relation to this. I find that we compare, like, we, we reference previous episodes and stuff or the, the qualities of other films, so I think it's useful to see where these other films compare with the, the ranking of the current film. At our website on Tumblr, you can also submit appeals through our Ask box. Um, feel free to also submit any concerns or uh, questions you might have uh, or any just plain old comments. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday. It is available on iTunes and SoundCloud as well as podcatching services that are attached to those two. We'd appreciate it if you leave us reviews or comments on either of those services. Certainly on iTunes, reviews are how podcasts get seen more easily. Uh, another great way to help the show out is to just tell your friends about us. It's going to be Halloween in five days after you hear this episode, so it's prime time to get in and get those Scream Scene listens in and learn about some classic spooky movies and some things you might otherwise not have known. What are we watching next week, Ben, after Halloween is over? Yes. Well, I'll just like to wish all of our listeners a happy Halloween. A spooky Halloween. Ooh. Ooh. Have plenty of candy. Or tricks. Right. Uh, dress up however you like, as spooky or as pop culturally relevant e or as sexy as you deem it appropriate to your Halloween event. <laughs> um, be sure to drink responsibly, but have a happy Halloween. Our next episode will be going up the next day on All Saints Day, and that will be James Whale's entry into the Cat in the Canary style of movie, and his entry in that genre ended up naming that genre. It's 1932's The Old Dark House. Nice. Happy Halloween, creatures of the night. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.